fill in a little bit while I was with my eyes closed. <laughs> All right. Okay. So we got a ton, a ton to cover. And I know we are not going to get to all this. They're all up here for the sake of if we, something is brought up, I can move around and fill things in where, where I get a chance to. But let's just dig in right off the bat and let's do a tiny bit of, of review from last week on the historical setting just to get us started because we really have not fully developed our understanding of the historical setting yet. We, we dabbled last week. We saw a little bit of insight in, in those first three chapters. And so let's just go back and review the, the most important things. Tell me, where is the location geographically of the events that are taking place in this book? Where is he? He's, yes, he is in the land of the Chaldeans, right? Yeah. All right. And he is there for what reason? What's going on that they're there? What does the text tell us? That's right. He is among the exiles. Now, last week, Kay took us into a cross-reference, and so I'm going to note that up here. And through the cross-reference, which was 2 Kings 23, I'll just write it on here. It was um, 2 Kings uh, chapter 23 to 25, basically. And and in there, she took us to see what was taking place in um, history in those three chapters that she took us to. Those sieges, how many sieges were there? Three. And who did it pertain to? Okay, it was the, 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 the sieges of Jerusalem and Israel and, and so forth, right? It was at that time in history that, that what we see is during the days of which king that was coming on the scene then? What was the kingdom? Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, right? So there was... It was Babylonian captivity. And we saw that it was Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm again, I'm just going to abbreviate him, little Nebby, okay? Um, and we know that it took place, it was a period of three sieges that were shown to us there. So that we see that there's an event of three. Now you tell me, this week, did you see something that you went ding, 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 ding on about the three sieges? What was it? It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Well, we saw, yes, very interesting because um, he, uh, Ezekiel's been given a vision about these three sieges, isn't he? But how many of them have actually already taken place at this point? One. Two of them, right? Because the first one was who? Who was the first siege? Who got the first siege? Who was he? Who was the first, who took into captivity? Who was taken into captivity in the first one? Daniel. So it was first, it was Daniel. Then the second siege took who? Ezekiel and the 10,000. So yet now the last one is to come and we are waiting for what, what is the third siege going to take care of? Jerusalem. And what happens to Jerusalem in that third siege? It's destroyed. Now I can tell you, that is profoundly important for you to understand what has happened and what is yet to happen when you consider what we've just looked at in these last four chapters this week on the prophecies that have been given to Ezekiel concerning the sieges, right? And which chapter in there kind of alludes then to these three 
things. Do you remember what the vision was or what the imagery was that was given? The cutting of the hair. And what was he to do with the hair? And divide it into what? One third, one third, one third. And if you didn't make the connection to the three sieges, if that didn't go ding, ding, ding in your brain, I hope now you're going, oh, of course. (laughs) It's kind of cool, isn't it, once you start doing this. So what we see then is these three sieges are given to, it starts in 605 B.C. and it goes to five, a total of 586 B.C., over that period of time, these things happen. So I want to do a little timeline here, just so that we have a visual up here. So we know 605 was Daniel and his friends. We know then that um, it was uh, 597 was when Ezekiel and that king were taken in. The king Jehoiakim, right? And his king. And then the last one yet ahead is going to take place in 586 B.C. And that's going to be when Jerusalem will be destroyed. And And pretty much everyone is taken. That's exactly right. Who's going to be left? Just the poorest of the poor. And, And among the poorest of the poor, what happens to them, by the way? Just as a New Testament aha moment. That's right. They start intermarrying with those invading uh, foreign nations, and they produce a half-breed nation, which is later called who? Samaritans. Samaritans. Just so you know that, okay? This is quite interesting, huh? Just a little extra tidbit. All right. That one cost you nothing. All right. So now here is where we are in our timeline of events here. We have, we're at 592 approximately, 592 B.C., and this is when Ezekiel in chapter 1 has his vision. It's in that fifth year after his, his exile or after his siege that he goes into captivity in. Everybody with me? Correct? That those little kind of timelines help a lot because visually, if you're looking at that, when you start reading what we've been looking at this week, it just helps to give you perspective. And then as you read things, things should start to go, oh, oh yeah, that's right. That has already happened and that hasn't happened yet. I mean, for me, one of the things that I caught myself forgetting was that th- that third one hadn't yet happened because in some little weird twisted way in my brain I did historical setting we did second kings and I said oh yeah three sieges done move on right oh whoops no we're not done yet are we we've only had two of those so we're waiting for that third siege yes you know that's a good point because it's pretty tough to you're right but then they did start to him oh, of course. Is it, does it, how, can you see some that does that is that a truth factor for people even today? Yeah. I mean, when God says He's going to do something, people are naysayers. Uh, they even almost, you know, are smug at you, sort of, and and they what is the right word? But they kind of look down upon you, like, well, you are so stupid, right, to believe yeah, that. You don't know Yeah, you're just so dumb, naive, right? They just make you feel belittled. All right, so this is kind of, in a nutshell, the major portion of our historical setting that we did last week. Now, the other thing we did last week is we began to look at Ezekiel. So let's 
review what we know about, about Ezekiel real quickly. Okay, the first thing we saw was that I want to, to remind you is the name of Ezekiel. Does anybody remember what his name actually means? Yes, isn't that cool? It means the Lord strengthens. Now, when you think about that, in the first three chapters that we looked at last week, in what ways do we see that in those uh, recordings that the Lord is strengthening Ezekiel? What kind of things were stated that give you that understanding of God's strengthening? <laughs> yes, yeah, so he gave him. In chapter 2, he says, I am going to give you a hard head just like their hard head, right? Okay. Yes, I love that. I, this, that the write-off, it said that, um, in chapter 1, verse 3 in particular, it says, and the word of the Lord came expressly to him. And then a little bit later on, it says, and the spirit uh, filled, when the Lord was speaking to him, the, fill, the spirit fills him up and puts him upright on his feet. So we see that the Lord is there. So I'm going to put on here, um, the word of the Lord came expressly To him. Now, I think that's significant, too, because of this word right here. What are you seeing in that? I want you to take you to the, to the level of, from God's perspective, about what do you learn about God in this statement? Yes, that there's a deliberate choosing of certain people by God for certain kinds of tasks. That's kind of cool. That's good insight. What else? Okay. That there's a, per- obviously then, in order for God to personally choose you for a mission, right? To choose you for a mission, to choose you for a mission. In, what does that tell you then about what God knows about you individually? He knows every individual person. And, he, and the great thing is he knows the end from the beginning too, doesn't he? He knows your heart. He knows if you'll finish. He knows if you'll... <laughs> isn't that true? He knows if, how... He knows... He also knows what about even the process of having chosen you. In the choosing of you, is there not also something sweet about knowing that God picked you to do that? But even if it's hard for you, what, what is it, it telling you since he chose you to do it? He loves it with you. And he knows it. Yes. And what is his desire for you personally? Not just that you do the job, but what else? <laughs> that you get to know your God in it, right? That you, that you become strengthened, that you become uh, closer to him, that you become the real light. Because it's, it's really an interesting dynamic when you think about the God, that God, God saves you by grace. You didn't even have really, it was not you, it was not of yourselves, it's of God, it's a gift, it's a gift. He gives you his spirit with the giftings that you have. Then he gives you opportunity to do different things. And so then you begin to do what God gifted you for through the grace of the salvation that he already gave to you. Then once you've, you've, done, you've stayed the course and done it and you're refined, you become more purified through it, you become stronger as you move along. And then at the end of it all, what does he do? When you get to heaven, what does he do? He rewards you, <laughs> exactly, and gives you, it's like, oh, good job. It's like, okay, I didn't do any of that, but thanks, <laughs> right? But this is kind of what we see here, yes? I wanted to say that 
what they want. Uh-huh. They had already chosen against the Lord. And so he dealt with someone who had not chosen against them. Right. So that is that is also a good insight. The fact that, you know, he I mean, of all the people that he could have chosen, he managed to find a remnant among the ones that were in exile, one who was who was faithful and would be faithful. And he endowed him, empowered him, chose him. You know, he fills him up. He strengthens him in all these ways because he's the one who will do the job. And even though, think about all the ones that were in there that, that weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing, weren't following, were Okay. All right. So now let's go on and let's talk more about what we know about Ezekiel then. Ezekiel is, he's defined by several specific titles in this chapter. What do we see in 1-3? What is he there? He's a priest. Now, would you say that title gives you any insights about some of the things that are coming up in these chapters that we looked at this week? The fact that he's a priest and some of these things which God is asking him to do as his prophet, do you see any kind of conflict in them for Ezekiel? What was the conflicts? Yeah, and the unclean food was an issue, wasn't it? Because what do you know about Levitical law? Oh, yeah, those of us who, many of us just came out of doing Leviticus not very long ago, and what we know is there was, there was the clean and the unclean, and there were all these very specific rules on what they were allowed to do and not allowed to do, huh? Did you find it interesting, James, when um, he asked him to burn his food or cook his food over fuel, which was what? Yeah, human dung, and when Ezekiel complained about that to the Lord, what did the Lord do? He, uh, yeah, what did you, so what did you see about God in that? <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. Yes, he was. Yes. I, you know, I don't know that they do, but I don't know that they don't. It, I mean, it doesn't really say. I mean, each of them had their defined role and defined mission. But certainly among the people of that time, it seems like the word travels pretty well, right? That as the, the exiles are in their exile and the prophet is speaking, are generally the, the people hearing and the word is getting passed on and passed on. So in... True, but are they not hearing? Almost like, you know, we have radio today, but is the word not spreading? Yeah. So I would say that certainly they know of each other and have heard of one another's words and so forth. So just as Daniel has spoken previously, and I do think that's very important for us to keep in mind. If we go back to Daniel, um, there's a chapter 9 of Daniel where D- D- Daniel's approaching the end. as He's getting close to the end of their 70 years. He's down here of their captivity. And, he's, and he is reminded when he reads Jeremiah's prophecies that their days in captivity were numbered by God to be 70 years and that they were quickly approaching the end of that time. So he goes to God in supplication and prayer, right? 
And I think, you know, all these insights about the dynamics of these people and how they're all probably crisscrossing with one another and how one thing does affect the other. So I, I certainly I think there had to be some kind of, not that they were friends, not that they were meeting for coffee in the morning, but that they were knowing of one another and, and associating in that regard. Yes. Mm-hmm. Consistent. Yes, thank you. Thank you. It's a good point. That's right. And the message to the people is being set out consistently through all three men. And they're hearing it from Daniel. They're hearing it from Jeremiah. They're hearing it now from, from Ezekiel. And previous to that, they heard it from Isaiah, who had already done some warning, right? So, don't you think that they would say, have you heard what happened today? You would think. <laughs> who would do that, Marion? Yeah, we would. If you and I were in this captivity and we heard something from, the, from one of these prophets concerning what God was saying, we would. But why would we do it and yet these people didn't? What's the, the difference? The, stubborn, the stubbornness of their hearts, the rebelliousness of them, which is what we're seeing in there, isn't it? When, when we looked at some of the events that have been taking place in these last four chapters, what kind of activity are these people engaged in on a daily basis? There was all these abominations and idol worship and wickedness, right? Yeah, and we, when we did some of our cross-referencing, it even talked about things like their relation, among their relationships with one another, how they dealt with one another, the intimacy relationship problems that were pretty profound. Um, and we think that's all a new world problem, right? But it was the, around even in that day. Isn't that an amazing thing? In this world, it's already happened in the Bible. That's exactly right. Uh, it's Ecclesiastes, I think, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so we see him as the priest. And as the priest, were there some limitations or rules that he was to follow? Yes. 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 And so what we need to do is the priest, we need to remember uh, the Levitical law. Just by, you know natural recourse the levitical law that was in place that this priest was supposed to abide by knew of was trying to adhere to although it was very difficult because he's not in jerusalem he's outside of the land right so just keep that in mind as a historical piece of this and then the other way that he is addressed in this book is in chapter 2 5 what was the other point of who ezekiel is to these people that god assigned him to be the prophet. Okay, so he's the prophet. He was called by God, um, and he was the prophet of the Lord. And so those are significant points about, about Ezekiel. What did he see in, in that chapter 1? He saw a vision. And that's all in chapter uh, we, we looked at this um, chapter 1 and 2 in particular, but all the way through 3. So what did he see in that vision? He saw what? He saw a storm coming. And very interesting, where was the storm coming from? 
the north. Now, does anybody have the connection on that yet through their commentaries? Or, or um, no. There you go. Babylon was in the north. And so the storm coming from the north, geographically, Babylon coming then down to uh, take over or to siege Jerusalem. So we saw a vision coming from the north. What were the, the big chunky pieces about this vision? We don't want to get into a lot of details because we don't have time to do that. But what were the basic things that he saw in that vision? Or living living beings. And talked about their, then it goes into the detail about their wheels and how they, wheels on the earth and, and then they would also lift up. Now, do you think that's significant insight? I mean, why would God give that insight about the idea that the wheels touch the earth and that, that sometimes they would lift up? What is the other thing that was above their heads? Expanse. There was an expanse and above the expanse, the glory of the Lord. And how was the glory of the Lord presented? What was he doing there? He was on a throne. So what a contrast that is between these living beings who seem to be kind of flittering here and there and moving and that solid, fixed fixture upon the throne. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful, as far as imagery is concerned, in the heart and the mind of, of Ezekiel as he's looking on this, what might have really strongly impressed him this, di- this difference in the dynamics between the four living beings versus the one upon the throne. So we have four living beings that were given to him. We see um, uh, as the living beings, they are, they are moving, basically. Uh, they are beneath the expanse. Above them is the is the throne and the one who sits upon it um and so the, the what you want to do for yourself in in what he saw initially first with the four living beings is is consider what was the impression that would have been left for him because there's a message in it right that's the whole point to imagery uh in these visions that God is giving. He's trying to convey a truth for Ezekiel's benefit, correct? Who is the vision to Ezekiel? It's the Lord giving it to him for what purpose? To strengthen him, which is what his name says, the Lord strengthens. So he's trying to strengthen him to do what? Yeah, to be that priest and that prophet that he's called him to be. He assigned him by birth, to be a priest, and then he called him to be the, the specific prophet of the Lord at this point in history. So we see, ba- what are some possibilities in about the living creatures in their relationship to the one upon the throne that you could also bring out? Mm-hmm. Along those, I know, no, 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 no. I, all of it's, you know what? There's a lot of it that's fuzzy, 
And so we can just kind of throw things out there and as, as these commentaries throw. The, the important thing for you and I as inductive students is to remember, commentaries are written by people who have studied the word and they're doing their best to draw interpretation. We don't want to totally throw them out and disregard them and act like what they have to say is of no value. But on the other hand, you don't want to take it as the gospel either. What's the gospel is what's going to be written in clearly stated words in the word of God. So you've got to balance it. Um, but the idea that they seem to be movable, though, yeah. and, and it does seem like there's a connection between them and what's on the throne, and yet, which is the superior? That the one upon the throne is clearly in this vision the superior, and that there is in some, re- some way or regard what is demonstrated by their movement, that the spirit moves them, that the one above them seems to be in this fixed place of authority, that they are under authority of that one that's on the throne. Doesn't that also then impress upon you then that they are also, like Ezekiel, a created being, being used by God for a designed purpose? That is really, really profoundly important for us to remember that in, in the creation of God on the whole, you know, beyond the, the physical realm of where we see and touch and, and exist, there is this spiritual realm also where God has created beings that he's showing to Ezekiel that are also there serving the same God that are under the authority also of God the Father. That's I think, is real insightful. And maybe as we move along, there'll be more insights on these living beings or these living creatures. That his, through his spirit and through his direction and authority, that there is movement of spiritual activity that is taking place. Yes. There's not only the spiritual activity that's taking place, but then through Ezekiel, there'll be the earthly activity that's taking place. Both, because if you look at it from a perspective, visual perspective, you've got the throne, you've got the expanse, those four living beings, you've got the earth and us upon it. And so you can almost see this uh, progression. Uh, in, uh, progression, but also defined roles assigned you were created for a designed purpose both his created living beings work for a purpose and we were designed for a purpose what we saw in chapters one two and three was ezekiel's calling for a purpose isn't that exciting so what are we learning at this point already about the lord well he's called each one of us for a purpose okay yes the sovereignty of him is really strongly being impressed. What else? Yes, that there is a defined plan in the mind of God from beginning to end, and he's heading, and he is directing by the power of his spirit and by the, the authority of the one upon the road to, on the throne to direct us in that direction to that end that he has in mind. Now, we're going to get into that even more as we move along. But that holiness is really, if we, do not, if we don't get that message out of this book, we are really missing it. I almost think, because when we went in and did Leviticus, I, I remember through the years, all the years I've heard people talk about the book of Leviticus, is how it teaches about the holiness of God. I think Ezekiel is teaching more about the holiness of God than I saw even in Leviticus, even though, yes, it was in Leviticus. But it seems like to me, and we're only in chapter 7, 
But I'm already beginning to see the concept of the holiness of God, which is the flip side of where most of us go with it. What do most of us think about when we think about the holiness of God? Does it give you a warm fuzzy and a, and a sense of peace? Yeah, it does me. What does that tell you then about you and me and our relationship with the one who is holy? That there, yes, that there is a, a, a um, sanctification over us and a protection over us that we have already received from him that gives us the no condemnation feeling that we can have, that we can enter into the presence of God and, and feel safe and secure and loved. But what if you're not of God's chosen? If you've not been the one who has found, has, uh, bowed your knee to him, responded to his message, then where are you when you think about the, the holy God? Yeah. So here is the nation of Israel. They're on that other end of the spectrum. Yes. I think Ezekiel also teaches a lot about the glory of God. Yes. In fact, you know, the new covenant was when we get to it because of the glory of God has been profaned. Yeah. Yes, and I want to more clearly define this morning the glory of the Lord and what that is exactly talking about. And although there is somewhat of a a weaving together of the glory of God and the holiness of God, there is some distinction there as well. So that's going to hopefully will... Yes, and you will know. Which actually, and did how many of you were able to start your list on that? Remember, Kay on day five says start a list on what you're learning about, and they will know that I am the Lord. Here, let me. I'm going to share with you real quick just a little a little additional help on your homework for for doing this. She said, do this list that says, then you will know that I am the Lord, right? I actually preface it with with some insight about what's said before that statement is. So I started a list like this because otherwise just stating this leaves you devoid of context and understanding. Some of you are grinning and going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you already do that? I am so proud of you guys. Not that I think that that's such a great thing on my part, but just that... I really do think that what that means is you were thinking it through and going, you know, just making a list about those statements that says, um, then you will know that I am the Lord, then you will know that I am the Lord, then you will know that I am the Lord, and where it's referenced. That doesn't do you a lot of good if you don't get a full contextual statement. So I went in, and for instance, the first one is in chapter 6, verse 7. It says, and the slain will fall among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Well, prefacing that before it is, thus says the Lord God. So look for those statements, thus says the Lord God, do one column on that, and just try to pick out the most fin- finite of the points. Don't, you, can't, you can't write the whole chapter. Obviously, it's all important. But what you want to do is get the gist of what's going on in that chapter enough so that you can understand why he then says, then you will know that I am the Lord. Okay, so I started it. I myself am going to bring a sword on you and I will destroy your high places. Then you will know that I am the Lord. It was the final statement. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's how I I did this chart. Yes. 
the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So what, so taking that into the next level, although certainly there is a message in this to them at that time in history, right? Is there a message in it, though, for us today? Besides the fallen world, how about us, the church? Is there also a message in it for us as we observe what God did do in history with these people? Lisa. Oh boy. His eyes have not left. Yeah. Yeah. And he is, as you said, holy. Yes. One of the things that would, I think, really be a great study for us at some point if we ever decide to do it would be the one on the names of God. Because in, in that study on the names of God, you come to know all of the attributes and characteristics of who God is. And I truly think that this is what the heart of most of our Bible studies are really all about. It's coming to see, and that's why I'm focusing on it today, is I want you to come to see what is it that we're supposed to be seeing about who our God is in this so that you and I can make some application. Because certainly, although we are under grace and we think immediately when we think about God's holiness and, and that you know, the, the glory of the Lord and that I am the Lord and you will know that I am the Lord, but we, we go, yes. You know, we want to go crawl up in his lap kind of in our mind. But those who don't know him are, are to fear him because of the judgment that's going to come. But there's also a lesson in that for you and I, is there not? Because although we're under grace and we have that salvation, and for us there is no condemnation. However, do you think that in your life, just think about you personally, in your life, do you really live in the light of the holiness of, of a holy God? Are there things in your life that if you stood before the Lord right this moment that you would have a sense of dread that your daddy just caught you with your hand in the cookie jar, kind of? And in that, is there a lesson that we can be drawing as we're going through this? Because it's really easy for us to do this, compartmentalize it. Okay, that's them and this is me over here. And what I'm reading about right now really has nothing to do with me. Oh, yes, it does. It does. Yes. The assurance we have that they don't have is that he's dealing with a loving father. Yes. He disciplines because he loves them. Exactly. He's discippointing them because he loves them, but they, he's, he's going to destroy them. Yes. He's, his first and foremost mission in this is not whether he even loves them or doesn't love them, but for what sake is he doing what he's doing? For his own glory, Right. Why? Because his name among the nations has been, at this point, blasphemed, right? Yes. They were to be his name bearer in the world. And that's right. They were, they were to be his, called his people, a holy his nation called out. Pardon? His ambassadors. 
Yes, exactly. Okay, so that was my little tip on homework for, for what you do. It's really early. She just started asking us to do this. The so last night I sat down and did this, and when I started the list, I went, this is like, it felt devoid of understanding and context. So I went in and I did, I added to my list so that there's two columns. One says, thus says the Lord, and I'm just very briefly mentioning, you can see it's not a lot. I'm just mentioning the primary points of what's going on in that chapter about what he has said to them. And then he says, when I do these things, you will know that I am the Lord so that you see the, the end result of it. Okay. So hopefully that'll help. Your, with your chart making. I think that chart's going to be really awesome when we get done with this. It's going to be a big one, though. So do it. I recommend do it on your computer, uh, if at all possible. And uh, that way you can go in and alter and fix it as you move along. Okay, make your adjustments. Okay, now. Okay, so we saw that Ezekiel has, he saw a vision of four living beings, and he saw the expanse. And then he saw the glory of the Lord, Right? So this is all just by way of review at this point. We've learned a lot, and we're still just in review point. Uh, 128, 126, I'm giving you your references on this. Uh, The four living beings was all that before there in chapter 1. Okay, so... um, What was his response... When he saw the glory of the Lord. Yes. He, he fell on his face. Now this is interesting. Because I don't know if you noticed it or not. This is stated in chapter 1 verse 28. That when he saw the glory of the Lord. He fell on his face. He says when he saw it. He fell on his face. What was his response when he saw the four living beings? I know that did not probably come into your mind, but I think it's important. It's distinctive. Is there a difference between what, I don't know about you, but if, you know, in my thinking, I'm going, boy, if I saw those beings, I would be falling on my face. (laughs) I would probably faint, right? Because it would be a fearful thing. And yet he didn't, did he? So he did not respond in the same way to the visual seeing of the four living beings as he did to when he saw the one upon the throne and his glory. So I just want you to kind of dance that around in your head a little bit because I do think it's significant that, that he fell on his face when he saw the glory of the Lord. Okay? I just think it's, I thought it was an insight. What truth does that then tell us about Ezekiel's response? I mean, Okay, so he knew that he obviously at this point was making a distinction between that which was the holiness of God in that moment, what he was seeing in the vision, versus what God was simply revealing to, us, to him to show him for basically for information's sake. He could distinguish between the living beings who were just living beings and the God the Father upon his throne. So there was some kind of, of, of an ability in him, that image that really impressed him that this is the exalted God of Israel upon his throne. Right Now, if you look at that in the context of what was going on historically for his people, too, what, what else might be kind of in that imagery of God upon his throne? What were some of the things that he was seeing about God? 
What do you think he was, he was seeing or, or thinking? Okay. Okay. So when he saw him on the throne, he saw sovereignty. He saw the sovereignty of God over, over, over what? Everything. Okay, everything. Over, yes, Israel, but also over even those four living beings, right? So he saw the sovereignty of God. What else does the depiction of one upon a throne give to you, the impression? Power. We see God in power. Okay, what else? What does the one upon a throne do, generally? The ruler, we see him as ruler. I'm just going to throw in here judge. Because in this, in this book, do you think that the concept of judgment would definitely come into his mind? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be tough because no matter where I move it, it's going to hit somebody. But yes. Okay, so sovereign, power, ruler, judge. Um, if you're going to have a judge, what comes before the judgment of something is what? The law itself. So the lawgiver, maybe even. Judge, lawgiver. I mean, these are all things which could, this, the imagery of the one upon the throne could start to impress upon him. And it's what I want you to start pondering. Because if you consider the context, the setting of this book for us, this is the first thing God shows him. And from this point, everything springboards off of it. Do you, are you following me why I'm trying to really impress that we hang on to this first chapters 1, 2, and 3 a little bit longer before we, even though I know it's important for us to, to get into these next chapters and to begin to see the things that God is commanding to, to uh, Ezekiel to tell the people and what the people's responses are going to be and what the imagery is and the things that are being said. Certainly the thus saith the Lord is important and then they will know that I am the Lord. But before we move there, we have to understand that the opening to this book, what God first impresses upon us even as readers through the recording of these events is this first encounter through the vision that Ezekiel has. And so we want to draw out of it as much as we can for contextual understanding of what was Ezekiel thinking and what was God trying to impress upon him, right? So he is impressing upon him these things about his God at this point, that he's the sovereign God, that he's powerful, that he's the ruler, that he's the judge, that he's the lawgiver. He is the one that was in the fixed place of authority. He's he's exalted in the heavens above all things. Everything else under was there, it, it seems, in response or in service to him. We had already seen him call him. And then the four living beings seemed to have with these wheels and this movement. And they're beneath the expanse. Um, so we see the authority then. And the power and the position and this, this great sovereignty of God in this vision, right? Okay, so... Yes, isn't that beautiful? This, yeah. yeah, there's a pretty, there's a really beautiful, wish I could draw it the way, yeah. <laughs> and then the last thing was that the Lord, he called Ezekiel uh, son of man. Yes. Did anybody do any more work on that? 
Okay, well, I know I did it last week, and so therefore you got, are you guys bailing out on me because I did it? <laughs> I only did a little bit because I wanted you to kind of, uh, you know, consider the idea that, you know, we know always that titles, when they're given to us in the scripture, either titles of God or titles of beings, like even Ezekiel's name, meaning that the Lord strengthens. It's profoundly significant in the message that's being given in the, in the recording of these things. So the idea of the Son of Man was what? What was the, in totality, what was def- the definition then of the Son of Man impressing for us? What was the message there? Human, the human being. Yes. And I think it's really interesting because you've got the four living beings and then you've got the human being. So I just think that that is important. And then both of these are beneath the the one who sits upon the throne. Okay? Um, It emphasizes that he's the son of Adam. I forgot to put, saw the expense, saw the glory of the Lord upon a throne. I forgot to put that on there, upon the throne. We want to make sure you get that throne in there. Okay, so here's my throne. Okay, there's my visual for a throne. All right, so that kind of is a review of what we did last week, believe it or not. Now what I want to do is I want to look a little bit at, um, let me think, how do I want to do this? All right, let's just go back and title Let's go back and title a few. Just start with our flow of thought a little bit before we move into what we did this week. Because we did not get a chance to do this last week. Um, I think I'll use this. This will work. Let's go here. Chapter 1. What did you title in the end, uh, chapter 1? What were the, the, the primary message in there? Now that we've talked it through in particular about knowing that God has a a definitive purpose in what he has both recorded in his word and in what he was showing Ezekiel. And he's drawing him to a place where he gets the message, right? He gets the, the right impression because what he's about is strengthening him, right? So what was chapter 1 about? He saw a vision, so you can title it. He saw a vision. All right, and uh, saw a vision, and, in, and then most significantly in that seeing of a vision, what did he see that was most profound? The glory of the Lord. The of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Because having talked it through, now we can see that that's the reality truth, even though a good portion of chapter 1 covers who? Those four living beings. But what does it do in the conclusion of it? It shows its relationship to the one who sits upon the throne. Even though it gives you a lot of details about it, and there's a lot of time spent on it, the only reason for doing that is to do what? Show the contrast between that four living being and the one upon the throne. So he saw a vision and he saw... Not just the one upon the throne, but he saw, in, all, in essence, in, in, I think it's in 126. What does it say that he saw? He, it gives a definition of what he was looking at. Right. And then when he explains what the appearance of the man is, it's in 28. What does it say? 
the glory of the law, the Lord. The glory of whoop, the Lord. <laughs> My brain. Out to lunch again. Okay, so that's in chapter one. He saw a vision and the glory of the Lord. Okay, we already we can already remember even at this point that the, when he saw the vision, he saw the four living beings, and then he saw the Lord upon the throne. So that's a pretty good title for for that one. We should have no problems re- getting good recall by that title. Now, if you choose different wording, it's fine. You do not have to use my wording. That's the great thing about inductive Bible study processes is there is a process, um, and we want to we want to hold fast to a truth message about the about what is the primary thing that's being said in each chapter. But if you if you choose to use slightly different wordings because it helps you, that's fine. Okay, there's no law about what title. The, t- the purpose of the title is to help you have recall about what's in that chapter when you're done. Yes. 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 That is really, really good. And uh, and as we move further into um, defining the glory of the Lord, that is going to to come up over and over again. That imagery of the fire and the cloud. Absolutely. And do you think that for Ezekiel that would be significant? Yes, it would. Because of his understanding of who the Lord was and what the glory of the Lord is, through all of the writings of the the prophets before him and through all the stories that the priests would have passed down through the generations of of, um, uh, the Israelites, for instance, in the wilderness and in those early years of of God bringing them out of their captivity to put them on the land which he gave them, which he is now exiling them from. Right? Okay, so chapter 2, what was the primary message there? Okay, it was about the fact that he was being commissioned as a prophet, right? That, the, you know, as you're laying down the opening of this book, the, the most important thing that you get out of that chapter 2 is that the understanding that God is calling Ezekiel to be a prophet. And what does the prophet do? What's his role? He speaks for God. And God, would, God goes on to tell him, you know, you speak to them and what if they don't listen? It doesn't matter whether they listen or not, you tell them. I think that's really cool because for me that was, that chapter 3 in particular was the chapter that God called me into the ministry work that he has given to me through that particular chapter. But he, it's really funny because he gave me that verse years before I began to teach. But he kept saying, doesn't matter, Katie, you sp- when you know my word, when I give you my word, you speak it whether they want to hear it or not. That's a hard one for a person to walk by. And I wasn't called as a prophet, but that message still of speaking it regardless, of helping people to know God's truth. And sometimes they don't want to hear it, do they? No. But, you have to repeat it. Yeah, and you have to. And you have to. <laughs> And you have to repeat it a lot. Okay, so um, let's just say on here, God, um, he said, uh, he tells him he is sending him, doesn't he? Yeah, Yeah. he is sending him as a prophet. 
And, and where is he sending him to? To what people group? To the sons of Israel. Okay, so this is chapter 2, verse 3. Okay, so God is sending him as a prophet to Israel. Chapter 3, what does he say? What's the primary message there? There's an additional quality to his work that he really hones in on in chapter 3. He is a watchman. God appoints him as a watchman. I love that too. That's a good point. Yeah. And that definitely makes you and I in our ministry callings, whatever they are, feel a great deal of comfort because what you know is it's, it's a tough lesson to learn though, isn't it? I mean, when you, I know when I was early in my, in my walk with the Lord, there would be things that God would seemingly, it was the Lord anyway, giving me works to do. And I would go about doing them. And sometimes there was good results, and sometimes there wasn't. And sometimes I would just throw my hands up and go, you know, what did I pour myself into on this? And there's one story I remember in particular was a particular, I'm not even going to mention her name, but a particular friend of mine whom the Lord gave me to disciple one-on-one. And I was working with her for several months, but it was like pulling teeth to get her focused and to help her learn the disciplines Uh, to put God as a priority. She kept having excuse after excuse why she couldn't meet with me, why she couldn't get the homework done, why, you know, all these things. It was just just lack of discipline. And at the end of the time, then, we got military orders to move from that particular place, and we were about to PCS. And um, I thought to myself, all that time I put into her, and for what? You know, I feel like a, a total failure. At the end, though, she did come back to me on the day I was leaving, and she cried, stood in my living room crying. She said, I should have taken more advantage of our time together, and I'm really sorry that I didn't. Now she's walking really faithfully with the Lord. So there was some work that came out of it, but I wasn't seeing it as I went along, and it it would have been so easy to give up. And this was God's demonstration to me, I think, in my life. It was the lesson he was showing me was... You know, you don't worry about the response. You tell them whether they want to hear it or not. You're responsible to do what I'm calling you to do, and how they respond is, is in their court. In Germany, um, I uh, was telling this young lady uh, who was not a Christian about the Lord, and every day I would go and see her and bring her a little gift, and she had three little kids, like under four years old, when she had her hands full. So she says, why are you doing this? And I says, because God loves you and so do I. (laughs) And so for three years, I kept doing this. And I kept telling her how God was, what God was doing in my life. Well, she finally, I came back to the States. And at Christmas time, I got a letter that they moved to northern Germany. And she entered a Bible study and accepted the Lord. Aww. She said, as a result of what you're telling Oh, how awesome. See, those are, the, those are the things I think that there is so much application for what we're seeing here, even though it can feel like this is just about Ezekiel, about an ancient history thing. But really, are there not real truths? There's threads of truth that run through this for you and I that we can say these apply to us as well. Just like Ezekiel in his time, maybe he didn't find himself to be that significant. Maybe what he thought of himself was, I'm not really a priest. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not in Jerusalem. I'm not in the real temple. I'm in captivity, which looks like God's people have been made fools, right? Um, he could have very easily have been just throwing his hands up and giving it all up. And yet God, it says God strengthened him, and then he moved in the power of God's spirit to do his will. Mm -hmm. Yes. Road to Emmaus, yes. Yes, we are. We absolutely. And tr not only will we see Jesus in, in, in ways, but we will also see um, the ministry of, that God has for us individually, that it, it is the same as it was for him, as it is for us. It's too easy for us to look at Ezekiel and go, but he was this great man, he had these great things. Uh, you know, and yet we think there's no real relationship between because that's ancient history and this is today, right? But the truth is that's not true. The truth is what we need to do as we're reading this is try to glean from it, how do I apply this in my life today? What is it that's going on for me? Are there things that I need to purge? Are there remembrance about who my God is and his glory and his holiness that I need to recall for myself that I am also forgetting that one day I will stand before God in judgment. Not judgment for sin, but judgment for the things by which I walked in, right? The things by which I, I brought him glory or did not, right? So we are going to remember that we too are really appointed as a watchman, are we not? Are, do you feel that there are people in your life that God has given to you that you're, like Marion's story, you're watching over them? And even though you may feel sometimes like you're not making a lot of progress, but do you feel the strengthening of the Lord for you to continue to be faithful in that? And when you start to wane in it, to go back then and to refresh your, your thoughts on the, the storylines of people like Ezekiel and what their difficulties were, what they endured, and you consider what we are, ha are doing in our life presently, and it, sometimes it makes it a little easier. Because then we move into chapter 4. Wow. Okay, poor Ezekiel, right? Now we're starting to go, okay, I'm not too sure being appointed as a watchman was really a great thing. <laughs> so now we're in chapter 4, and that's where we started our work today. We, and... Um, as we do that, you know what? Let me stop before I move into chapter four, though. I want to go back to the glory of the Lord because I want to do, I want to kind of intertwine a little bit what Pastor Rob um, taught us this week at, from the pulpit. He was speaking about um, uh, the second Samuel chapter six, right? And he was talking about uh, David. David is moving the Holy Ark of the Covenant by a cart, to Jerusalem. Yeah, we're all laughing. Oh, those of us who know what that means. Okay. And there's a tragic event that takes place, right? A man yes. dies right. because he reaches out to stabilize the ark when the ox, when the ox stumbles, right? Now, what was the problem there? 
They did it inappropriately. I just want you to know that there was the reason. It wasn't that because he, he was trying to do a good thing. It was that they had, the whole thing was being done incorrectly. Right. If you go back to Numbers, for those of you who want to know this and make a note in your Bibles about it, no, Numbers chapter 4 verses 1 through 15 tells us that the ark was only to be carried as objects that were holy. They were considered the holy objects. And they were to be called, carried on the shoulders by poles right? And, uh, there, and there was strict rule. No one is to touch it. Okay, so that was a, a definitive rule. Yes. That is what it all boils yeah, down to. Yes. Yes. And it all stemmed from one thing. What was it? What, God is holy and they were being disobedient to his law. He had given them instructions very clearly defined in the book of Leviticus. You can go back to Exodus and see it. In this case, it's a reference of it in the book of Numbers. This was things that was told to them over and over and over. And certainly as a priest of God, right? You think about the things that that he's looking at among his people right now and he's thinking of all the laws that God had given them and they are doing what with their God? Treating him what? irreverently right without respect without honor and so he's not treating as holy those things which are holy there was another one when we did i'm going to go back to our leviticus study you remember when we did leviticus um i think it was chapter 10 yes in chapter 10 do you remember what happened when um aaron's sons went in and gave uh what did they call it strange fire what was the problem there They were not supposed to. There was rules as to who could go in and who could not. And what else about the kind of thing that was given as... Yeah, the fire itself was incorrectly done. And so it was being done by the wrong people and it was the wrong thing that was done. And so even though, quote, they're good intentions, right? But what was the problem there? Again, disobedience. Disobedience. God gave rules. He gave a defined way to approach him, and they broke it. And in the, in the end, what happened to those two young men? They died. So it's the same story, isn't it? Leviticus 10 matches right up with what he showed us in 2 Samuel 6, right? Um, in all the years, though, then, that when you look at the glory of the Lord, I just want to do the history here. Let's do this. Uh, the glory of the Lord in um, Israel's history. I want to talk about that just a tiny, tiny bit because I want to make sure that we, we grab hold of this. What do they know about the glory of the Lord from historical per, uh, perspective? Well, go back to Exodus chapter 40, and in chapter 40 we see that In all the wandering years of Israel, the glory of the Lord was with the people, correct? How was it with the people? Back to what you were saying, Diane. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the glory of the Lord was with Israel as a cloud. And a fire. A cloud by day and a fire by night, correct? Um, 
And it followed the people in that portable tabernacle that God had designed through the Exodus recordings. He had given them, again, instructions on how it was to be constructed, what, how things were to be put together, not only that, but even who should carry what when things were being in movement, right? Which is, again, goes back to our numbers or back to our Second um, Samuel one that Pastor Rob spoke to us about. So the idea that they were to treat it with holiness, following the rules, right? And so this is the historical understanding of Israel about concerning the glory of the Lord that the glory of the Lord was to be honored in a way that there was obedience to what was spoken to them by commandments, right? And in their behavior, how they were to follow those, those things which God had commanded them. So he, uh, once the camp was then made and the tabernacle would be erected as they were making these movements, what would happen with that cloud and that fire? It would move, and then what would happen when the camp was actually established at the end of the day, and now it's all set up, then what would happen? That fire would do what? It would enter into the tabernacle, right, and rest upon that Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim that were there, right, the ones with the wings. And so the cloud or the fire would fall, and God would basically visibly dwell among his people for them, right? So that's their knowledge of the glory of the Lord in, in context to Ezekiel's understanding right? So when he gets this vision of, quote, the glory of the Lord, it's not like it's a new concept to him. He recognized it right away. Do you remember how he was described, the the man with the human appearance, and then he was given what other kind of qualities? From the, from the, from the loins down and the loins up, and there was fire, right? And there was a radiance like a cloud, so this, again, was in, in an imagery way very similar to what historically Israel understood about their God, this, this fire or this cloud, this mist, and that it would then fall down upon the tabernacle. It would dwell among them. And they, by name, it's, it's recorded in their writings through um, uh, Moses that the, that the glory of the Lord was with them or among them and that it dwelt in their tabernacle in the midst of the people. Okay? So I just want to impress that because the glory of the Lord was with Israel as a cloud and a fire all the way back starting in, in I'm just going to put Exodus 48 as one of your references that you can go la- look at. We see uh, how they were to, um, how they were to, yeah, I guess execute is a good word, execute God's. God's law for all kinds of things. And we see in Numbers chapter 4, 1 to 15, one of the references there about how they were to transport things, who was to touch it, who wasn't, what was to be done. So there's some real specific rules. Um, David and the priests basically forgot that, didn't they? That was what the problem was. That's where you you can actually go back and look at that Leviticus uh, 10. Um, in Exodus, we see it again in Exodus uh, 13. I looked up one in 13:21, where again the glory of the Lord is seen as a cloud and a, and a fire. Okay, so that that's another reference that he would be familiar with. Um, and then again in 
uh, back to chapter 40, but at the end in verse 34 is another reference. It says that then when the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, then the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So that is their, their point of reference. That's Ezekiel's point of reference. So if you want to look at a historical setting of this, when he sees, quote, the glory of the Lord, where is it at here? Um, right here. When he sees the glory of the Lord, right? He understands it from, from a historical understanding of what the glory of the Lord was all about. The idea of the clouds and the fire, what was imag- by imagery even given to him through that first vision in chapter 1, he saw and recognized the glory of the Lord. Isn't that neat? And, you know, I know that some of the commentaries want to talk about it with the appearance of a man alluding there to even a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, correct? Some of your commentaries would say that that's Christ, but, but in the mind of Ezekiel, is that what he saw? Is that what he thought? No. no. So I want to ask you just by, by way of, again, um, doing a little more pondering and meditating on this, why the image of a man was seen? Why do you think God gave the image of a man Yes, the fire. Yes, the glistening. Yes, the radiance of the of like a rainbow. All right, awesome, Margaret. So the idea that we know that we were created in His image, and therefore, when Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord upon the throne, he was in the image of a man. What does that do for Ezekiel in his thinking about who is God is? Okay, there's a strengthening because why? Why does that strengthen you to see God in the form of man? Because you're. Yeah, identification, that there's some kind of a connection between us and God, God who sits upon the throne, right? Potentially. I'm just saying we, we want to kind of ponder all the points of things that have been shown to us thus far and see what might it be ha- have been impressing upon Ezekiel in that moment. And, you know, I'm not trying to disregard the idea that, that the imagery there of being of Jesus. Certainly we know in the New Testament day that G- God came in the form of a man. But Ezekiel is still considering it through his perspective. And that's where we want to try to really grab hold of. So we see an identifying quality, the fact that he is man, right? Then he gives him the title right here, the human being. And it seems to be di- distinguished from these, which are the four living beings. Yeah, and the one upon the throne seems to be more, more closely, almost more closely related in some ways than to the human being, right? Okay, I think the other thing was that um, all the false idol worship and everything that was going on, too, that, you know, that was the false gods, but showing that, like you said, the identification, I'm man, I'm not some kind of... I'm not some kind of alien, I'm not some, you know, I am what I said I was going to be, is uh, making mm-hmm. a man from my image, mm-hmm. would be one thing, and obviously that he's a prophet, and him writing it down would help point to Jesus. Yeah, okay, maybe, yes. Any other thoughts? If you saw God sitting upon the throne, saw him in the form, as it says, the figure of a man, what would that do for you? Yes. There you go. I think it's a lot of it is about relationship. It's an identifying quality which ma- makes me feel endeared to him in some way. Even though he's, he's all-powerful, he's the judge, there's authority, 
yet there's something that connects us through the imagery of him being in the form of a man. Yes. He is one of the, not one that was doing that necessarily, but he is one among them that has been over that temple. Okay, so that then takes us to the, one of the classifications that were given to us about who he is, and that is what? That he was to be what? A watchman. A watchman, because he also, in some way, is, there's a connection between him and the one upon the throne and his responsibility then to the rest who are not following in the ways of God and that he's to be the prophet toward. Yeah. I think that that to him would be a strength because he has seen the desecration of the people and all of it and has been taken prisoner and probably not exciting time in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> okay, so I feel like we did a pretty good job this morning of making sure that we went back. We got the good contextual setting de- more fully developed now. We're seeing more of a connection to the vision and the callings, the titles, the names that are given in this one and one that you might want to do. And, um, I did not put it on my chart this week. Yes, I did. I did it in my word studies. We're going to get there, but the title of the, of the Lord God and the Lord, did you all actually go in and do your word studies on that? I said to you how important those titles of God are. If you have not done word studies on them, even though Kay hasn't asked you to do them yet, it would be real beneficial to you to see the full picture of because he's calling himself these things, what is that he's that he is trying to convey in them? So let me just do this word study over here on the Lord real quick with you. Since in chapter six three, which is coming up, we see him called Lord, and it's number one thirty six. Um, and then he's also called Lord, and then he's called. God, all in capital letters, Lord, God, and they're, they're like a compound word, they, can, they are connected at the hip and such, right, and th- so this is uh, 3069, and then the last one that I looked up was in 6-7 where he's called Lord, all capital letters, and it, and it was number 3068. Now, what does that tell you already just by looking at the numbers? That God and Lord are what? Really, well, they're different, but they're also very close because you know, when you're looking at 68 and 69, that these two apparently one is a root of the other, correct? That there's going to be a connection there for you. So that's, that's a little bit of a clue. Let's start here with the word Lord in capital letters. And that word is the word Jehovah or Yahovah, Y-A-H-O-V-A-H. Jehovah is how we pronounce it, J-E-H-O-V-A-H, all capital letters. I didn't do that, but so you should, Jehovah. Um, does anybody know what that word, that title is just off the top of your head by definition? Father. Not father. It's the I am. That's exactly right. It's his proper name. Do you remember when it was first introduced to Israel as a nation? 
Exodus with Moses, <laughs> where the pillar of fire. of fire and the cloud by day and God. Do you remember the first encounter when with with uh, Moses when he says, "Show me your glory," and he hid him in the cliff of the rock and he allowed him to see the back of him come by. That's when the glory is seen in that. And that is the, the same time frame in which this title is given to Israel as a known name for God. Pr- prior to that, there had not been. Yes, but I'm saying that time frame with Moses and... The burning bush. Right, yes. And because when Moses was, um, was called to go back to Egypt and to free the people, and he, and he was kind of arguing with God about all of it at the beginning, but he simply said to him, who shall I say has sent, has sent me? And that's when God said, tell them I am, right, sent you. So, that, so this is Jehovah, this is the I am. And it is the proper name of God. Now, this was what I thought was cool. It has an an emphasis or a focus on this title. The focus is on sure existence and his relationship to his covenant people. Interesting. Sure existence and his covenant relationship. To his people. That's the that's where the focus is. Okay? The sure existence of God and the covenant relationship to his people. Okay, so that's the word Lord. And then we have the word Lord up here, which is lowercase uh, words, and this is the word Adonai. A D O N A Y. Does anybody know what Adonai is about? Think about what we're looking at in this book. The one who sits upon the throne. The ruler. Yeah. King, Lord, master, all those things. Okay, so we can put up here. Um, uh, it is, again, Lord, uh, God, master, ruler. Okay, this time the focus is on what? On the throne? And the one upon the throne? His sovereignty or his authority? Authority. Focuses on authority. And then secondarily, then it, they, they use it as a compound word between the two. The Lord and the Lord God, are, they're, they're scrunched together, basically. And they're actually, this word... Lord here was developed to distinguish between this title here is what the, the, uh, the dictionary said. And so when they, when they do it, they put these two together. It's a, they're a compound usage. They're always put together. So it's the Lord God. And in this one, it's um, the same word, Jehovah. But the only thing is, is they, they did it ta- uh, a little different in order to distinguish from this title, which is uh, focuses upon the idea of relationship and sure existence. His proper name, the I am. Up here, it's on this focus on authority. So those are the, the titles of God that we have in this particular chapter. And you need to go in and do your own word studies on these so you thoroughly work it through in your brain. I want you to have it uh, on a piece of paper that you've printed out and you put into your book. 
okay? And keep it kind of at the front of your book somewhere where you have it handy so that every time you come across these words, the Lord God and the Lord, you have a reference to go back to and say, oh, that's right, that's on this subject or this is what the emphasis is there about who he is because who he is and what he's saying in that moment, he's saying to them, then you will know that I am the Lord. And what does he mean by that? I'm the authority. You will do it in my way. I have given commands. You will worship me. You will obey me. You will follow my decrees. Right? And so this is, this is what the emphasis is on in this particular book. Okay, now we've got just a couple minutes to try to cover what we did this week on each of these other chapters. We're going to try to title them. Obviously, we won't have time to go into a great deal of detail on them, but we can get some of them. Chapter 5. What do we see in... Oh, I'm sorry. Chapter 4. You're right. Chapter 4. Oh, come on. We can skip 4. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Chapter 4. There is a sign given, correct, in this chapter. What's the sign part of it? I'm going to break this down for us in two parts. I'm going to... Let me erase this for a second and give you a little note on here on what I'm going to be doing when it comes to titling. We're going we're gonna to look first at uh, what the prophet did. So it's going to be a double, kind of a double title. What the prophet did. And then we'll follow it with um, what God's, God's word was or his message was. God's word to Israel through that. Right? Because there's, there really is two parts to the storyline, right? There's what God told him to do that was to be the imagery for them. And then secondarily, through that imagery, there was a message. Correct? And so when you're titling it, it's pretty hard to separate the two things. We automatically go to the imagery. Because the first thing you think about in chapter 5 is what? The brick. There's a brick, right? Chapter 4. Did I say 5? Oh, I'm so sorry. Chapter 4. What is the first thing you think about? The brick. Okay, so chapter 4. First of all, we know that it's a sign, it says. It tells us it's a sign. And it's, it's a brick. And what was on the brick? Okay, inscribed with Jerusalem. And what happens, to, what is he doing with it? He's going to lay on it first on one side, then on the other side, and he's supposed to be bound. He's got all these things. And in the end, what is the key repeated word in that chapter that what you see about the idea that he's laying on the brick, what is that being called here? Huh? Well, we know that's the why behind it. But what is the the physicalness of him laying on it? Okay, we got a little brick. And here we got his body laying over the top of the brick, right? So what is the imagery there? Besieged. That is besieged. So we see it's a brick inscribed with Jerusalem and it's besieged. Okay, so that's the imagery, right? But what's the message? What did God want Israel to know was going to be happening to them through him Visually laying on a brick, be, and, and, and in one a statement there that he was going to be bound so that he could not move to or fro, what is that imagery about? 
the idea of ju judgment, captivity, punishment. Okay, so pull from the words some, some things that you see going on in there and give me a verse that you might pick as a key verse to, to show the major message that God was giving Israel through this imagery. Okay, you shall bear their iniquity. That's what the prophet is going to do in the, the, this imagery process that he is going to. But what is God's message to Israel? There you go. They are going to be besieged. He's telling them uh, that they will be besieged or banished, it says. There's banishment is one of the words that he uses, right? And then what is the other thing that happens with him besides the being tied up? Concerning food, we already talked a little bit. So what was, the, what was the imagery telling them about their food? It's going to be scarce, right? It's going, there's, going to be, there's going to be a small amount of the food resulting in what to their bodies? What's going to happen to them? A wasting away. So is there a verse in there that talks about their wasting away and, ba and ba banishment? Okay, what does it say in 17? said to me, Son of man, behold, I'm going to break the staff of the bread in Jerusalem, and they will eat bread by their weight and with anxiety and drink water by measure and in horror, because bread and water will be scarce, and they will be appalled with one another and waste away in their Okay, so specifically that verse really hones in on the food part of, of the message. So there's a food part of the message, but now there's also the secondary message, which has to do with what? That when he shows him bound up, that they're going to be besieged or banished. Because after they're besieged, what happens to them? They get carried off into their captivity. Is there another verse in here that covers kind of both of those? Ah, uh, yes, 13 is a really good one. I picked up on that. Then the Lord said thus, what? Okay, so does that cover both qualities of banishment or the besieging and taking into captivity and the food issue? Does that verse cover both of those things for you? So I just wanted to show you that this is kind of what you're looking for. Sometimes it doesn't work out that well. Sometimes you have to take two verses and use both of them and just kind of blend them together and give a title with both of those references to it. But in this case, verse 13 actually did a really good job of kind of pulling them both together. It did not use the word besieged in it. And if you prefer uh, the word uh, besieged over banishment because it's a key repeated word in that thing, you could do that. But the result of being besieged was that they were going to be banished, correct? Yeah. So it's still really an effective title for it, I think. So I'm going to put... Um, uh, banishment and wasting. That's the message. Banishment and wasting away for Israel. Okay, so can you see how I've done a double title on this? What the prophet... Oop, I did the colors backwards. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know what? God's word. I'm going to rewrite it because I want to get this correct so that you guys can follow my thinking here. Um, see, I got to follow my own thing. <laughs> it's different from what's on here. That's where my problem is. 
I don't have the right color markers. Banishment and wasting away for Israel. And that's in verse 13. And then I'm going to do up here, this is supposed to be the red. And it's what did he do? He's, it, it was a brick inscribed with Jerusalem and besieged. And that was in verse 3. Okay, so I pulled verse 3 to show you what the prophet did. It was the idea of, the, being, of having this brick inscribed and then besieging it by his body laying on top of it. And then God's word to Israel with that picture, that's your imagery, was that there would be banishment and wasting away for Israel. So that was God's message to them. Is that, are you kind of following the pattern now? Okay, good. All right, so let's try the next one, see if I can get the right markers. <laughs> okay, chapter... Is there anything else that you want to talk about concerning chapter 4? Yes. Well, we don't have to ignore it. What would you like to tell us about that? I don't know. Oh, well, you know, that's very interesting. How many of you did some research on the number of days and what that was talking about? Yes, Lise. Okay. Okay, interesting. Now, what, what I, I'm going to just kind of throw in here is we don't know. <laughs> the, God's word does not give us a definitive answer to this question. What it does do for us is it says these are the number of years that God has determined was the, was the, dis, the years of disobedience. What he measures it by, he doesn't explain. But, what, but I think what's most important is what about the, the fact that there is a number of years? That it shows that it's true and it's exact yeah. and it's prophetic. Yeah, therefore, that it's prophetic, pro- prophetic, that it's a definitive time, says that it's absolutely true, and that God has measured it. Yes. I'm sorry, go ahead, uh, Angie. Yeah, right, they don't know, but... right. That part's factual. It's in there. Mm-hmm. Those years add up to it wasn't until 127 Yeah. But technically, they were always under someone's rule from the days of Babylon all the way to this very day. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's vague. And I guess this is a really good precept, inductive Bible study teaching moment. And that is that sometimes there really aren't uh, definitive answers for things like this. 
what you have to do is not lose the, the point of the message here through this vision to him and the instruction, which is that what God is trying to tell Israel is that he is going to judge them for something that they did wrong, right? I love that too, that it's a defined and a limited time. Right. Do these other things. That's right. So there's hope in it a little bit, huh? Now, to me, even more significant was, you shall bear their iniquity. Mm-hmm. what he told Ezekiel. So again, that is, God is providing him to bear the iniquity. Yes. So he's providing a son of man through the prophet, who is the priest. Do we eventually come to a great high priest and the prophet of God who bears the iniquity of man? So through Yes, yes. You know that's that's real possible. I hadn't thought of that. It might have been one of the stories he brings up. Do you remember when this I said this through Ezekiel and although what we do know about most people is they don't read Ezekiel. <laughs> it's a tough book. <laughs> Uh, exactly exactly okay well we're down to like five minutes so we want to get through the next two chapters that was good questions there on that all right chapter six again now oh i'm sorry i keep wanting to jump ahead don't i i'm so sorry chapter five what do we see as the imagery in chapter five yeah and what is what happens with the hair what does he do he uses that razor on it right so it's a razor Cut head, basically, is the imagery that's given to us there, right? Does anybody, did anybody go ding, 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 ding on that one? What kind of insights do you know about that might relate to this? Wasn't that Samuel? Okay. Oh, that's cool. That often in Israel, when they would go in mourning, they would razor cut their head. So it's a sign, it's, a, it's one of the signs of mourning, all right? unbelievable this is it is a forbidden thing by a priest um let me see uh in leviticus 21 5 for those of you who want to go look i'm going to put a reference up here leviticus 21 5 there is where you see it's it's really it's a picture of humiliation or mourning or severe treatment or judgment, often even um, when Israel would be captured by its enemies, one of the things they would do is shave their head. It was a sign of belittling them or bringing them down, right? So, um, but in that uh, Leviticus 21, in particular, since he is identified as the priest, right? He is, and he's under Levitical law, he is not to shave his head. That is forbidden for the priest. And so when your priest shows up with his head shaven. What, is, what an imagery that really is. It is not that profound to you and me because we got people, we got one right in our midst, right there. And I'm not looking at him going, oh my gosh, what happened? Right? Although you guys have probably said that about me and my curly locks this week. Oh my God, what happened, right? But a shaven head was a profound message and it had that message of mourning, of humiliation, of judgment, 
of defilement, of impurity, all these things. And for a priest to do this in particular was quite significant. So then what was then the actual word of the Lord about in that, in that particular chapter? What was he telling Jerusalem? Okay, so there's a one-third, a one-third, and a one-third. And that made me think about what? One-third, one-third, and one-third. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. There's a dividing that. And I'm not saying it's a direct correlation, but in my mind, my mind went there. Okay. No, and they're not done yet with those sieges either. And uh, w- one of you all said recent, uh, or just a few minutes ago that th- what was still standing? The temple. So in their minds, what? Oh, it's, they're still in control. They're, that's still their land. And there's, there's, this is not God coming. Ag- that's not God coming against them because God's still protecting his temple, right? Well, there's a lot of things of defilement. That's true, but it was still standing. And so you've got to remember on the timeline where they are in these sieges. That at this point, when he's given this vision, this razor-cut head, he's not thinking about this yet. But now the, the word comes to them, and now what is he telling them? What is going to get judged in this particular chapter? Go to verse 8. Thus says the Lord. Now, those are the words that you need to be really keying in on regularly. It's why one of the reasons I told you to do your list with those two things. Thus says the Lord God. This is what he's wanting to say to them. Okay, here's the imagery, guys, the shaved head of your priest. Now, this is what the Lord says. Okay, so now what does he tell them in that verse? He's going to execute judgment. Yeah. This is Jerusalem. And I have set her at the center of the nations with the lands around her. But she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances and not walked in it. And therefore, in verse 7, thus says the Lord, because of this, what? Mm -hmm. And in verse 8, what's he going to do? And who, and in verse, uh, there you go. Now, does that relate to the shaven head? In the sight of the nations, I'm going to take you, my holy nation, my chosen people, my glory, and I am going to, basically, I'm going to judge you in their sight. That's like, when you were a little kid growing up, did you ever get a spanking in front of a friend? I know it doesn't, it didn't happen often, probably, hopefully, for most of us. Some of us, maybe, but... But for most of us, it did not, right? Because why? Yes, it's one, it's one thing to get a spanking in the back bedroom in the privacy of your room, right? But it's another thing when your mom or dad spanks you in front of your friends. What, what does that do for you? Total humiliation, total shame, total crushing, really. Okay, so this is what he says, in the sight of the nations, I am going to judge you. Doesn't that just make you sad? It just breaks your heart. So we see judgment. 
of Jerusalem in sight of nations. And see, that's going to be, uh, I put verse 8, but it kind of is the whole segment right in there. It's a combination of all that. It's judgment of Jerusalem in the sight of the nations. Uh, judgment is going to be allotted. He does the dividing of the hair. God's nation rebelled against him more wickedly than those nations. And so now he's going to, he's going to do to them what they did to him. In the sight of the nations, they defiled his holy name. He is going to now humiliate them in the sight of the nations. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Once you stop thinking about your own shame, certainly then the next thing is, what about the nations as they see? If this father is willing to discipline his own, what will he do to us? Right? Potentially. Okay, so let's move on. Now we can go to chapter 6. We've got to hurry, though, because we're, we're out of time here. And I, I want to get titles up here. Chapter 6, the... Um, the imagery, uh, then there is what? What is he told to do in verse 2? Yes, but specifically imagery, why? What, what is he told to do? Set your face against, right? Set your face against the mountains or toward. Uh, set his face toward. Now, she told you to do a list on the mountains of Israel. What did you learn? Okay, people. Yeah, when you finally get to the end of that chapter, what the, one of the last things it says is it's, that's where they did what? In verse 13, it's the places where they offered what? soothing aroma to their gods right so in essence he's saying about him setting his face to the mountains it's saying i want you to to be against it i want you to as the prophet of god as my spokesman i want you to get in their face right i want you to show them that there is a stern uh, observance of what they have done i'm seeing it i am i am calling you on it and it is before my face it's in my face, right? That's kind of what God is doing here, imagery-wise. And then what's the message then in response? Look in verse 14. What is he telling them? What will God do? I like the I wills in this, by the way, as a key word. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I mean, I wish we had time to really lay this out and just talk it through. If we only had another couple of hours. <laughs> it's so sad because I just never have enough time. But he tells him the imagery why you're to set your face toward the mountains. And that's going to, my message is, I will stretch out my hand against you. So we get this word against, right? Face toward. And that word against are are the two imagery pictures. I am looking at you, and he's saying, I want you to do this visually so that they understand I'm going to stretch my hand out against them. Oh, 
Oh, I love that. Thank you for bringing that up because that one just broke my heart when I saw that, how they have broken God's heart by their behavior. And do, do you think that we break the heart of God, even as his children, even in true covenant with him, even if on the whole we are walking faithfully with him? Are there not times when we disobey God's very clearly defined laws, his very decla- uh, declared uh, commandments, and we break his heart. I just think it's so sad. Grieve Grieving the spirit of God. That's right. Okay, now chapter 7. One last one. Very fast. We're almost done. Moreover is the very first word. Did you notice that? Yes. What does that do between 6 and 7? It connects them. Therefore, there's no new imagery in that. Did you notice? Okay, so the imagery comes then, follows from here down setting his face toward the mountains of Israel. And he tells them, the first thing he says to him, I'm going to stretch out my hand against them. And in chapter 7, what does he tell them? That's exactly right. And what is your key repeated word in that chapter? The end, the end, the end, the end, the end. So what is he telling them? The end is coming. This is it. The end of this. In other words, I have been patient with you long enough. Right? I have told you. Now, that should take in your, you in your mind back to Deuteronomy chapter, uh, is it 28 and 29, when he gives them the law, and he, makes, and he, gives, and he tells them that if you obey what? Like Blessing, and if you disobey? Cursing. Cursing. So he brings, as their covenant God, right, as Jehovah, he takes them at this point then and says, look, that's it. You have broken it for long enough. And he, earlier on in chapter 5, he numbered the many of years that he put up with it and put up with it and put up with it. And they weren't keeping the covenant and they weren't obeying as they should. And so they've broken the covenant long enough and now he says to them in chapter 7, then that's it, the end, right? Uh, the end is coming. And then he says the end has come. So yeah, yeah. And it, it's, the end is coming upon the inhabitants of the land. Now, why do you think he mentions it in that perspective, that it's the inhabitants, quote, of the land? What does that make you think of? Eventually, there's the joy, the joy of knowing that. But the, the mention of the land reminds them that what, they're on the land by what? By covenant with God, right? It takes them back to their covenant, to their covenant agreement with God concerning the land. They would be on the land as God's people, and as long as they were obeying Him, He would bless them. But when they ceased to bless, when they ceased to be the honoring of their covenant, then He would begin to curse them. And one of the the promises was, "I will exile you off the land," right? Well, we did good, guys. We got through a lot. And I'm sorry that I had to hang so long on that first part, but I really want to get context, 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 so that we can start in the next weeks just making a reference back to some of these things and then being able to spend a little bit more time talking on what you've looked at.